So I want to talk about kindness today, but to talk about kindness, I have to tell a little story about SeaWorld. Some of you have heard my SeaWorld story. Every once in a while, I got to tell it again because it's a story that brings me a lot of happiness. I think most of you know, and some of you online maybe don't know, for eight years, Becky and I and our three kids lived in Central Florida, and we were the amusement park family. It was either SeaWorld or Universal or Disney. And when we first moved to uh, Florida, Trey wasn't even born yet. So uh, we first got a membership at SeaWorld. So we'd go SeaWorld, and our oldest, Nick, he was about six. And Sam was about three, and Trey was just an infant. And most weekends, we would find our way at SeaWorld. And Nick's favorite part of SeaWorld was the huge dolphin tank. There's a dolphin tank that's probably about two or three sizes of this room, and it was filled with probably about, I don't know, uh, eight or ten dolphins. And so we would always go by that tank, and Nick would splash his hands in that tank, and Sam would, and, uh, and they loved that part. I mean, it's central Florida, so you're hot. And most of the people around that tank are hoping that, you know, they'll put their hands in the water, and one of the dolphins will swim up to them, and so they're, they're buying those fish from the, 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 the little place they buy them. They're throwing fish in there. Hopefully, they'll get a dolphin. But usually when we went there, this happened so often that we just thought it was, we expected it. One of the, the, one of the trainers for the dolphins would motion to us, come over here, and they would lead us over to this private little area alongside of the tank. And they'd take us behind this little closed door and would get this front row seat to the little tank, and there'd be a little box that Nick and Sam could stand on so they, would, they could get their hands right there in the water and, and see the dolphins. And then the, the trainer would blow her whistle. And suddenly you'd have 10 dolphins right in front of us with their little heads in the water. Nick and Sam, they would, they would just love that part. And then she'd blow her whistle and one dolphin would go out in the water and jump in the air and do a flip and come back. And she'd do another whistle and we for like 10 minutes would have this own private little dolphin show. So the dolphins would be up in front of the water and she would take Nick's hand and do a motion and then the little dolphin would splash Nick with a little flipper and it was just a fun time. And we loved it. I mean, it was, and so it happened so frequently that when we would get to that dolphin tank, Nick would walk to that private area like, when are you going to let me in? So that was fun. And usually what would happen is when the show was done, our private show was done, the worker would look at us and say, you know, I, my nephew has autism. Or something like, um, my mom works with kids with special needs. And basically, they'd say, I see your situation, and I want to show you kindness. And we all like to be the recipient of kindness. That feels good. When someone can say, I see your situation, and I want to do something about it. I want to show you kindness. You know, you didn't earn it. You didn't pay extra to have the front row seat at SeaWorld but I'm just going to show you kindness because I see your situation. And that's what God does for each and every day. He says, I see your situation, and I want to show you kindness. And I think sometimes in our culture, we undervalue kindness. I think we think kindness is just kind of smiling at somebody when you walk into Meyer, like you acknowledge the greeter, like that's kindness, or maybe just saying hi to somebody that you really don't know. And I think we've, we've kind of minimized the value of kindness. See, the Bible gives us a completely different view of kindness. The Bible tells us that kindness is strong enough to transform a person. That kindness has the power to change the trajectory of a person's life. 
You read it in Romans 2, it says, the Apostle Paul says, can't you see that kindness is intended to turn you from your sins? In other words, the scripture is saying, can't you see that kindness has the power to transform your heart? And when your heart is transformed, your life is transformed. That's the power of kindness. So I want to talk about kindness today, but I also want to talk about this word restoried. That our lives are restoried. And one of the ways our lives are restoried is by kindness. See, restoried is a way to say getting your life back to the plans that God originally had for you. See, each of us were born, each of us were created by God who had a plan and a destiny for our lives even before we were conceived. That was the original plan for our life. And as you know, we were born into a world of sin. And suddenly our, the good plans that God had for our lives were tainted by sin. And there came a point, place in our life that we had a choice to make. Would we continue with the enemy's plans for our life or would we say, God, I want to get back to your plans? And when we acknowledge that we want to be part of God's plans for our lives, our lives begin to be restored. Our lives tell a different story. We were created to be storytellers. We're created to tell the story of our life, and that is best done when we experience kindness of God, when we experience a transformation that happens in our life because of the goodness and the grace of God. As you know, this whole year we've been talking about three different things, spiritual gifts, spiritual formation, as well as spiritual conflict. And we're going to continue to talk about these three topics this year because when you understand these three areas, that influences your life and we become the people that God has created us to be. The truth is, I love talking about spiritual gifts. I love talking about the power of God that comes into your life so you can do the things that Jesus did. That's fun to talk about. That's fun to see the Holy Spirit do such a work in your life that you can do things that you never thought possible because, but it all happens because of the Holy Spirit working in your life. But you can't talk about spiritual gifts without talking about character. We need to talk about our character. We need to talk about God developing the character in our lives so that we are a proper reflection of Christ. We need to look like Christ if we're going to do the things that Christ did. We can't just do the things that he did. We need to look like him as well. So that's why we're spending so much time talking about spiritual formation. In Galatians 5 verse 22, Jesus tells us what we need to look like. He says the, fruit of the, he says the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. See, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is another way of saying these are the characteristics of a Christian. These are the characteristics of a Christ follower. You need to reflect those nine attributes. A couple of verses earlier, Jesus tells us what we should not look like. He says, when you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, Outburst of angers, selfish ambition, dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. So we need to take a good hard look at both of these lists and say, what does my life really look like? Which life really is a good picture of my life? See, I love talking about spiritual gifts. 
It's fun to talk about spiritual gifts, but sometimes I think we talk about spiritual gifts more than we talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to use spiritual gifts, we need to have a fruit of the Holy Spirit and a gift of the Holy Spirit working together at the same time. See, one thing, one reason why we ignore talking about the fruit of the Holy Spirit is because fruit takes a long time to grow. It takes a long time to grow. You've got to plant the tree. You don't plant an apple seed and get an apple the next day. Sometimes you've got to wait years before you see results of fruit. Sometimes an apple tree can produce, can, won't produce apples for maybe the first three years. It takes a long time to produce fruit in our lives. One of the greatest Christians in the New Testament was the Apostle Paul. Very gifted man. The man got saved, radically converted. He didn't start his public ministry the next day. Most authorities think he went away for maybe 10 to 13 years. He had to develop some character in his life before he actually could be in ministry to do what God had called him to do. It takes a long time to grow fruit. It takes a lot of patience to grow fruit. That's why I think sometimes we don't like to talk about fruit because it's a lot of work. See, earlier this year when we started talking about spiritual gifts, I mentioned that the Apostle Paul says, eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Pray to God to give you more gifts, he says. But Paul interrupts his enthusiasm and he says, but look, if you don't have love, then don't, then don't even bother using your spiritual gifts because it's going to be like clanging cymbals. It's going to annoy people if you're using your spiritual gifts, but you're not grounded in love. But see, when you do your spiritual gifts alongside with character, it's a symphony that people want to hear. So as we're pursuing spiritual gifts as a church, we need to step back and say, do I have enough character to support the spiritual gifts that God has given to me? I think it's really important that we listen to Paul's advice. Are you really grounded in love? Are you really grounded in the fruit of the Holy Spirit? I think Ann Voskamp, Voskamp gives us a very good contextual commentary on our culture with a statement I'm going to read that she says. She said, Sometimes you would think Christ's own were known by who they avoid, who they disdained, who they call out, and who they label. I think she hits the nail on the head. A lot of times, Christ's followers are known more for what they're against than known what they're really for. Our reputation is not that good. We are known for people that we, we avoid, who we disdain, who we call out, and who we label. There's a lot of truth to her statement. Now, maybe none of you are the problem. Maybe none of you are reflective of that statement. And I don't think you are. We may not be the problem, or you may not be the problem, but we have to act as if we are the problem. If we are going to be the solution for the world, we have to act like we are the ones with the problem because we're not going to change the people that are the problem. Instead, we got to make sure are we loving properly? Are we showing kindness? Are we showing compassion to other people? We need to take responsibility for the reputation that the church has experienced and show kindness to other people. We need to take the commissioning that God has given to us very serious. 
I love how Jesus says it in John 13. He says, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other, just as I have loved you. You should show each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Your love for another person will prove that you are my disciples. Are we really proving to the world that we are Jesus' disciples by the love we're showing other people? That's a really good question to ask. We can struggle with that. That's, that's something really good to ask ourselves. You know, in 2 Corinthians, the church at the time, they were, they were debating Paul. The church didn't believe that Paul was really an apostle. They were challenging his apostleship. So Paul defended himself in three ways we see in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 6. The first thing that he said to the church is he says, look at the beating I've taken for being an apostle. Who would take a beating if they really didn't believe in the message of Jesus Christ? That's his first thing to prove to the world that he said, I'm an apostle. I took a beating for it. That's a powerful statement he said, because I think sometimes we wonder the persecution that we experience, maybe persecution American style. People are looking at us, and that sometimes does prove to other people that you are a follower of Jesus. That you'll take ridicule and you'll take mockery, you'll take slander, you'll take persecution, and you still stand up for it. That does show your allegiance to the message of Christ. So that's the first thing that Paul says. He says, look at the abuse I've taken. Do you think I would take this abuse being beat, beat up and thrown in prison if I really wasn't an apostle? And the second thing he says, he reminds the people of how he maintained his spiritual life while he was in jail and beat up. Saying, look at the character I displayed. Then the third thing that Paul does is he reminds the people of the fruit of the Holy Spirit that's evident in his life. And which of the characteristics of the fruit of the Holy Spirit do you think he mentioned? Kindness. Basically what Paul said to defend himself is, you want proof that I'm an apostle? I'm a kind person. That was one of the, the hallmarks that Paul used. To say to the people, that's proof that I'm an apostle. I took a beating, I maintained my integrity, and I came out of it a kind person. That speaks volume of the power of being kind. See, a lot of people, we don't see the church as a kind place. And I think we all want to change that. We want the church to have a reputation as being a kind place. And I, I've, I've asked myself a lot over the last two years, it seems like there's more and more fractures in the church over the last two years. I wonder why. What's the problem? What's been happening? And well, I think Ann Voskramp had a very good answer a minute ago, so I'm going to quote her again. She says, this is how the enemy tries to cut the body of Christ. This is how the enemy divides the body of Christ. If you disagree with someone on one point, then you must disdain or dismiss them entirely. And if you acknowledge or affirm someone, then you must agree with them entirely. This is a lie. Break it. That's a good point. We kind of live in this culture now that basically says, if one person does one little thing wrong, done with them entirely. You can't live that way. Or people think, well, I like one thing that person does, so I'll agree with them entirely. Can't live that way either. We got to know how to move and flow and bend and be accommodating to other people that might have a different opinion. 
God, enemy lies to us so much, especially when it comes with disagreeing with other people. We've forgotten how to disagree and still be friends. See, the vision of Lake Effect Church is that we would be a church of character. That we would be a community that shows kindness to other people. That when people think of Lake Effect Church, they think, that's a church of kind people. They're nice people. They're a church that reflect Christ well to the world. See, people often ask me, why did you name it Lake Effect? See, some people like the name Lake Effect because it's kind of cool in the Midwest, but a lot of people are like, what does that mean? See, usually when people think of a lake effect, they think snow. And that's often not the best image you want because a lot of people in Michigan don't like snow. But let me tell you very simply what a lake effect is. A lake effect is a weather pattern that produces fruit. A lake effect is nothing more than a weather pattern that produces fruit. Sometimes we need snow. A lake effect produces snow. Sometimes we need rain. Lake effect produces rain. Sometimes we need clouds. Lake effect produces clouds. Sometimes we need really warm weather. Lake effect produces really warm weather. All to produce fruit. Everything that's happening in our weather is designed to produce fruit. You don't like Michigan cloudy days? That's caused by a lake effect. Cloudy Michigan days protect our fruit trees from getting too cold. When it's a cloudy, dreary, 10-day stretch in Michigan and you haven't seen the sun and you're feeling a little depressed and a little discouraged, think about the apples you're going to get in the fall. Think about the peaches you're going to get in the summer. The cloudy weather protects the trees from getting too cold. If the clouds went away, we get a lot more of that northern uh, Canadian uh, cold air and it would freeze our trees. Those clouds protect us. You don't like lake effect snow? The farmers like that snow on their field. You know those long Michigan summers that we get when it gets really warm in the end of October and people are saying, when's it ever going to cool off? That's a lake effect so we can get another harvest out of our apple trees. A lake effect produces fruit. That's what we want in our church. We want a church that produces fruit of the Holy Spirit. That we're a church that's known by love and compassion and kindness. So I think a lake effect more than a church, but it's a culture. It's a culture that's produced by the Holy Spirit. So you cannot produce true kindness or true fruit of the Holy Spirit apart from the Holy Spirit. God is in charge of the atmosphere that's around us, and God uses the atmosphere around us to produce fruit in our own lives. Sometimes we don't like windy days. We don't like cold days. We don't like dreary days. We don't like really hot days. But God uses it all to produce fruit. And that's what we want to be as a community, that no matter what happens in the atmosphere around us, that we submit to God and we say, God, would you use all of this for your good and produce the fruit in our lives so we can be a reflection of Christ to the world? That's what a lake effect is. It's when you lean into the atmosphere and say, God, just, just use it. I want to close today by talking about two different stories, two different ways that God shows his kindness in the Bible. 
In John 5, we love this story. This is a story about the man that was paralyzed that was sat by the pool of Bethesda for probably 38 years. John 5 tells us that periodically an angel would come to this pool and stir up the water, and whoever could get into the water first would miraculously get healed. So you can imagine all around that pool, there were people that were blind and deaf and couldn't walk, all sitting around that pool just waiting and hoping that an angel would come and stir up the water, and they would be one of the first ones into it. And one day, Jesus, he comes up to that pool, and he sees a man that's sitting on the side, and he says to the man, he says, do you want to be healed? And you read that question, you're like, well, obviously he wants to be healed. He's sitting next to that pool. Why else would he be here? You think it's a little bit of a dumb question, or you think it's a little bit insensitive, Jesus. Why would you ask a man who wants to be healed? He's kind of waiting. But since we know that Jesus is not insensitive, we have to think, why is Jesus asking that question? Does this man really want to be healed? And when you listen to the man's answer, it kind of does make you wonder, did he want to be healed? Because Jesus said to him, do you want to be healed? He didn't say, yes, please, please pick me. Help me get in the water. No. He said, um, um, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going another, and, and while I'm trying to get to the water, somebody gets in front of me. Basically, this man said, um, I have an excuse. I have an excuse. I'm not healed because of this situation. I think what Jesus was saying to this man, are you willing to do whatever it's going to take to find healing in your life? Because this man didn't find healing by blaming other people. He would find his healing by being obedient to the instructions of Jesus. I think this man is a picture of what it's easy to do. You just sit there and wait. Can I wait? God, I told you what I wanted. You're just kind of waiting for it to happen. But this man wasn't being obedient. Until Jesus said to him, Jesus' words to him, well, Jesus said to him, pick up your mat and walk. And the man got up and he was healed. But the man had to follow the instructions of Jesus in order to be healed. And sometimes that's what we need to do. Our healing is going to start with answering the question that Jesus is asking to us and then responding to his instructions of what to do to find our healing. And this is a beautiful story. This man gets healed. He can walk. He walks away. I mean, what a perfect day for this man. Got healed, got whole. He could walk again. It's a beautiful story. But then we go to 2 Samuel, the story of Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth got healed, but he still wasn't able to walk. It's an interesting story. He was healed, but he couldn't walk. In 2 Samuel, verse 5, we meet this man named Mephibosheth. And the Lord restored his life. The Lord gave him everything that he needed. But he probably didn't get what he actually was praying for at the time. See, Mephibosheth was a young man. He was a grandson of King Saul and a son of Saul. He was a little boy that was raised in the palace, and someday he would be the next king. So he was treated like royalty. Everybody took care of every single need that this little boy had because someday they knew he would be the next king. He had the best teachers. He had the best aides. He had the best toys. He had the best friends. Everything this little boy needed, he had because he would be the next king. 
But life didn't turn out well, so well for that boy. One day, his grandfather and his father, they went out to war. And in the middle of the war, his father and grandfather got killed. So the word came back to the palace and said, you better watch out. Saul and Jonathan, they've been killed. David is declared the new king. And David is going to come into this palace, and he's going to kill all of you. So you better get out of here as soon as possible. So as you can imagine, Saul's whole household, they were nervous and they were scared, so they picked up everything to run. And one of the nurses, she picked up this little boy named Mephibosheth, and she's running down the stairs, and she drops the boy, and he breaks both of his legs. And the scripture tells us he never walked again. And what they did, the whole family, they ran to the city called Lodabar. The meaning of that city means barren wasteland. The entire family ran to the city called Lodabar and they basically hid for the rest of their lives because they were afraid King David was going to come and kill them. So here's this little boy. Grew up having every single thing that he needed. He was next in line to be royalty. And one day he's dropped. Breaks both of his legs ends up living in a city called Barren Wasteland. No toys, no friends, his family's scattered, and they're basically living in the worst possible place they could live. My guess is that boy probably asked every day, when can we go back home? When can we go back to the palace? When can I go play with my toys? When can I see my friends? When's my legs going to get better? Year after year, that boy lived in low depart, hiding and worried. Probably, and they, they told him, the reason we're here is because King David, he wants to kill us. We can't leave. King David will kill us. Don't tell anybody your real name. King David will kill us. This boy grew up blaming King David for all the problems in his life. I think we do that sometimes, too. We need somebody to blame for our lives, so... We sometimes blame the king. We blame God for the situation that we're in. But you know, for little Mephibosheth, his biggest problem was not his broken legs. His biggest problem was not living in Lodabar. His biggest problem was not, not having family and friends around him. His biggest problem is he was living in ignorance. He was living in ignorance. King David wasn't going to kill him. King David wasn't going to kill anybody in Saul's household. He wasn't going to kill anybody in Jonathan's household. See, King David made a covenant with Jonathan before Jonathan died, and David said, look, if anything ever happens to you, I'll take care of your family. Jonathan made a covenant with with, or David made a covenant with Jonathan and said, I'll always provide for your family. Whatever your family needs, I'll take care of them. But Mephibosheth and his family, they believed a lie that King David was their enemy and not their friend. Nobody in Saul's house had to run to Lodabar. They could have stayed in the palace with the king. He never had planned to kick them out. But the beautiful thing is one day when, call, when, when David's a king, he said to one of his servants one day, he said, hey, is there anybody left of a descendant of Saul that I can show my kindness to? 
Is there anybody left in Jonathan's family that I can show my kindness to? So David's servant goes out and he comes back and he says to David, hey, we found one person. There's one person left that's a descendant of King Saul. His name is Mephibosheth, but his legs are broken. Sort of his way of saying, yeah, there's one person left, but it really doesn't matter. You know, his legs are broken. We, let's not worry about him. But what was David's response? He said, go get him. Go get him and bring him to me because I want to show him kindness. David sent out his servant and said, go find the one that, need, that I can show kindness to. See, David is a picture of God. David is a picture of Jesus. That he sits on his throne and he says, who can I show kindness to? And he says to his servants, go find someone for me to show kindness to. See, that's what God calls each of us to do. To be the servant. To show kindness to another person and bring them to Jesus so he can restore everything that was lost in their life. That's our mandate. That is what we are commissioned to do. We are commissioned to show kindness to people and bring them to Jesus so he can restore everything that's been lost in their family. That's what we do. But nobody's going to respond to us if we sound like a clanging cymbal. We have to show love to people and compassion and kindness. So David's servant finds Mephibosheth, goes to Mephibosheth's house and says, hey, the king wants to see you. What's Mephibosheth's response? Oh no, he's going to kill me. My life's over. So they take Mephibosheth, they get him to King David. Mephibosheth comes right before King David and what does Mephibosheth do? He falls to the ground in fear. He's scared, thinking this is it. My whole life I've known this guy's going to kill me. It's finally happened. And what does David say? He says, don't fear. Don't fear. I made a covenant with your father. I made a covenant for your salvation. You're going to be okay. But what I'm going to do to you is I'm going to restore to you everything that's been lost. You're going to be able to sit at the table with me. Every meal for the rest of your life, you're going to eat with me. You're not going to eat with the slaves. You're not going to eat with the servants. You're not going to eat with anybody else. You're going to sit with me. Here Mephibosheth spent his entire life thinking David is going to kill him. Now the rest of his life he's going to sit at the table with David. He's going to sit at the table with the king. And then what, then what David says? He returns all the land back to Mephibosheth that his family lost. Mephibosheth, he can't farm. He can't do anything. His legs are broken. So David assigns somebody else to take care of the land for him. That's a picture of what God does in our life. He restores whatever's been lost. And whatever we're not capable of doing, he brings someone alongside to help us accomplish what needs to be done. That's the kindness of God. You can look at that story and say, but Mephibosheth still couldn't walk. 
Why didn't God heal his legs? He didn't need to walk. Death fellowship of the king. He didn't need to. The challenges in Mephibosheth's life did not separate him from having fellowship with the king. That's the kindness of God. Mephibosheth hadn't, did not have to be perfect to sit with the king. He could be flogged. And he's still welcome at the king's table. His legs could still be broken. Welcome at the king's table. Mephibosheth's life was marked by being dropped at age five. And he still sat at the king's table. That's the invitation from God. It doesn't matter. You're reconciled to me. And you can sit at the king's table. That's a beautiful story. And it's a beautiful reminder for us that each day Jesus says to us, hey, do you think there's anybody out there that I could show kindness to? Do you think there's anybody out there that I could extend my covenant of salvation to so they could experience my kindness? That's what we get to do every single day. We get to show people the kindness of Christ. We get to show people the kindness of Christ and bring them to Christ so Christ can restore every single thing that's been lost in their life. That's pretty good. But we have to develop the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our life. We have to develop the love and the joy and the peace and the patience and the kindness and the goodness and the gentleness and the self-control. We have to trust in God that he is influencing the lake effect atmosphere to bring the change to our life that we need so we can be an ambassador of Jesus. If we want to do what Jesus did, we're going to have to look like Jesus. Amen. So God, I thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, for the invitation and the mandate that you have given to us to do the things that Jesus did. In this case, to do the things that the servant of David did. To go and find the people that you are saying, I want to show kindness to. And God, we know that this kindness cannot be developed in us just quickly. And but Lord, I thank you for some of us, you've been developing it over many decades. And God, we just pray that you just continue to grow the fruit of the Holy Spirit in each of our lives, that we would be a reflection of Christ, that other people would look at us and they would look at us as a community, they'll look at us as a gathering, they'll look at us as a church and say, they're different. They're kind. They're compassionate. God, I pray that you'd fill us with your Holy Spirit this week, Lord, so we can find the people that you want to show kindness to and we could bring them to you. God, would you empower us this week with boldness? Would you empower us this week, Lord, to hear who you are calling us to show kindness to? God, we're asking that you'd fill this church with Mephibosheths. People who are scared of you, people who are hiding, people who are broken, people who are filled with shame and discouragement, people that are living, that they're believing a lie. 
God, I pray that you'd use us to spread the news that you have a covenant of kindness that you want to show with people. Empower us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.